So good, such rich truth that we're singing. Thank you, Josh. I want to invite you to go to Jeremiah 39. Jeremiah 39. As you go in there, uh, I'll get us rolling with our thoughts for today's sermon. Uh, You know that Aaron and I were on a trip in South Dakota just recently, and you may have experienced something like this on a trip. You have planned for so many things to do and uh, so much money to spend on food and things to enjoy and all that kind of stuff, and you're trying your best to stick to a budget, stick to the plan. And you know, at some point during your trip, you you have to sort of take inventory. You have to sit down and maybe sort of balance the checkbook, or, you know, some folks around here don't know what a checkbook is anymore. I never learned how to balance one properly. That's why I thank God for my wife. But um, you, you take inventory, you check. Have we spent too much money? How much do we have to spend how much is left? What can we still go do? There is, in some sense, this, this balancing that's taken place so that you can carry out the remainder of your trip. And as we look at this text today, there's one commentator that describes this chapter as a payoff of sorts. He describes it in terms of balancing uh, things out in terms of God's both judging for sin and blessing for faith. This chapter, chapter 39, is a a bit of a pause along the way, and it resembles very closely chapter 52, which brings us to the end of Jeremiah, and that chapter adds a bit more detail. So if we can look at it today as sort of a stop along the way and see how God is dealing with people who are responding in various ways to his word, We can see this as sort of a a payoff, a balancing of sorts. Join me in 39. We'll read the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. And in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Y'all ready for these? Nergal Sarezer of Samgar, Nebu Sarsechem, the Rabsaris, Nergal Sarezer, the Rabmag, and all with, or excuse me, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. And they went, and they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, In the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. The king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. 
he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house, the house of the people, and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left, the land of Ju- left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar, the Rebsaris, Nergal Sarezer, the Rabmag, and all the chief officers of the king of Babylon sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my word against this city for harm and not for good, and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, You shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we delight ourselves in your word now. Help us by the Spirit's work to cast off all distractions, hindrances, obstacles to understanding your word, to seeing Jesus for who he is, all the obstacles to worshiping you truthfully and in the power of the Spirit, authentically. Help us now. We need your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Your Response and Sure Results. Your Response and Sure Results. You noticed here that some dates were given at the very beginning, verses 1 and 2. There's an 18-month siege that happens on the city of Jerusalem. You noticed how the siege began, and then it took that time for them to actually invade the city, take the city, break down the walls, and set up their post there. And as we've been walking through Jeremiah, should there be any surprise that this is happening? Of course not. All these years, Jeremiah preached the same message of destruction. When things seemed good on the very front end, he proclaimed God's judgment. As corruption came to the surface, he warned the people. When the calamity was was sort of knocking on the door, he stood in boldness and declared that God will let no sin go unpunished. And now God's judgment befalls them right before their eyes and the eyes of the nations. 
This ought to remind us that God is seeing his word through to the end. God is not a God of empty threats. He's not a God of empty promises, but he acts toward us with precision and purpose. We must understand this. Cast off all ideas that you have about um, the things sort of uh, coming around that go around or however the saying goes. Cast off whatever people in the world are telling you about the universe and how things ought to be in balance in the universe. What we have is a personal God who personally deals with us for the things that we say and do, the things that we believe or disbelieve. All of his judgment is on purpose, both good and bad. And so the theme this morning, God deals with us in accord with our response to his word. God deals with us in accord with our response to his word. There seems to be harmony in the way that God deals justly and mercifully. When he acts toward us, he is ready to pour out his mercy on the repentant. But at the same time, Exodus 34 reminds us that he will by no means clear the guilty. So as we consider some of these responses to God's word and their results, may we take inventory of our own heart. May we come to that place along the journey where we test our hearts against what God will do, what he said he will do. So I want to give you some responses and sure results this morning. Responses and sure results. First off, from verses 3 through 8, rebellion asks for peril. Rebellion asks for peril. Nebuchadnezzar sends his highest officials, as we just read, to occupy the middle gate here. Most likely, this gate was a gate that connected the lower part of the city, and we're, we're talking about elevation, the lower part of the city with the more elevated part of Jerusalem. And it was a place where uh, control was maintained. The middle gate was a place where they could set up their sort of uh, fledgling government now here in Jerusalem as a, as a new province being set up for Babylon. So there was a new government moving in. And what do we find Zedekiah doing? He's still running. Zedekiah is still running. He's not just running from human enemies. Understand this. He's running from what God had appointed. The consequences of his rebellion. Kidner writes here, Zedekiah has not dared to let God save him and his city and his family. And now he deserts the people that he has doomed. So he comes in and instead of the last opportunity to repent, okay, 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 God, I'm giving myself to, myself to this government. I'm giving my family, my people to this government. We, we submit. No, he doesn't do that. At some point, <laughs> Zedekiah will acknowledge that God will do what he said he would do. Destruction will come. All these years, he's heard this preached, and his father heard it preached, and his brother heard it preached. 
At some point, all the peril that surrounds him will end the delusion that he can sidestep God's judgment. Zedekiah embodies what's so perplexing about the human heart and proof of its wickedness. We can know what God said. We can know what will happen, and we will still make stupid decisions. Why is it? Why is it that when we're caught in a lie, we lie more? (laughs) That's our condition. Why, Why is it that when we're stuck in a bad way and we change nothing about our lives, we somehow expect things to get better? Why is it that knowing what God has said, we still run from him thinking that we'll get away? We'll we'll escape this, this judgment here. Maybe a worse condition. Maybe a worse condition. People in rebellion may not even realize the peril that surrounds them. They may not even see the enemy occupying the gates of their hearts and their minds, the gates of their relationships, the gates of their future. Let that sink in. You have seen it in others. You've probably seen it in yourself. The enemy has set up governance over the places that once belonged to God. And no matter what the word says, no matter what the prophets say, no matter what the people of God caution The rebellion just continues. And then he receives a sentence, verse 5. You see that phrase there? And he passed sentence on him. So don't be mistaken. This courtroom-style sentence delivered by Nebuchadnezzar originated in the throne room of the sovereign God. It's not that God was sort of pushed out of Jerusalem by the enemy. God left a long time ago. It's not that God was squeezed out of the heart and the mind of the rebellious. It's that God left. And he appointed the destruction at the hand of the enemy. And as the opportunities to repent draw to a close, we Rest in the fact as believers that God's justice will be served. One commentator notes, like these verses right here, they they give very little hope. Like they, they don't testify to, like all that these verses do, they want the reader, the hearer, to just sort of sit in this brutality. You see what happens? You see what happens to this dude? Uh, Bregman says, the brutal death of his sons is the last thing he sees. The last thing he will ever see. The last thing he will see as long as he lives. Get that in your mind. This is totally brutal judgment by God through the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He says, it's as though the narrative wants us to attend only to the dread and brutality presented in the scene. This is what rebellion brings. And even those of us who who are believers, you know that there are these seasons of your life that happen in rebellion. And guess what? If that rebellion continues, it may be that you don't know Jesus.
don't forget what Jeremiah's ministry was to be about. Jeremiah 1.10, to pluck up and tear down, to destroy and to overthrow. So he receives this sentence here, Zedekiah. Commentator says either he would go willingly as the prophet urged or violently as it finally happened. I would tell you, friend, do not put the Lord to the test in rebellion. Rebellion asks for peril. Rebellion asks for peril. Second response, ensure results from verses 9 and 10. Surrender affords provision. Surrender affords provision. You recall that Nebuzaradan managed to carry off a lot of these people, especially those who were of uh, notable status. He wanted to carry them off in exile. It seems that your run-of-the-mill Judean was also carried off, but there was a group left in the city that um, the, the writer here, Jeremiah, describes as the poorest of the Judeans. So there's a group of poor people that are left. And I don't want to dig deeper than what's here, but they receive mention on purpose. So all those that rejected the notion that destruction would come to Jerusalem, they were carried off. But those left in the land were poor. They had no possessions or land. They were not a threat to Babylon. These people were given vineyards, given fields, indicating that the Babylonians were concerned to sustain the economic structure of the community, as Bregeman says. So whatever the plans of Babylonian leadership, they were going to use these people. It appears that God, who is behind this, is graciously allowing these poorest Judeans to live in Jerusalem and take a meaningful role in the future of God's people and the future of God's city. They understood that surrender was their only option. We depend on God, and whatever he's got for us, we're going to do. You know, it's these poorest people that were probably the ones that could be found faithful, if any were found faithful. They understood surrender was their only option. Their position of dependence on God allowed them to be more ready to accept God's work upon this city, really his discipline upon the city, upon the people, upon the temple, upon the land. And though they were not carried off, they were experiencing exile in many ways similar to their brothers in the exiled land. Maybe similar to modern-day Christians. And it brings to mind a concept that we read in the New Testament to which we've referred before, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those who are in high positions. We have already done that this morning as a church. Paul writing to Timothy gives the reason that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, though the pagan human government is not what God intended, he appoints government for the good of his people, Romans 13. Under that corrupt reign, God provides for his people and keeps them on mission. Do you get this? The poorest people 
were elevated to the status of vineyard, vineyard owners and field workers. They were elevated in this exile by God's good provision. So from Jerusalem to the land of captivity, don't forget that the people of God are to labor toward the shalom of God, the peace of God for the good of all those around them. So surrender affords provision. Surrender affords provision. Let's move on. Number three, third response and sure result. Commitment avails protection. You notice we had four P's last week. We have four more P's this week. Eight P's altogether. It's almost a side dish. Commitment avails protection, verses 11 through 14. See Jeremiah gaining his freedom. The next chapter recounts how Jeremiah actually left enchained with his countrymen, but this account fast forwards to his freedom. And this is why this is a somewhat unique chapter. It captures some big ideas, some big themes in regard to God's evaluating and taking inventory in God's total work here. So it fast forwards to his freedom. Jeremiah's freedom comes as proof that God is seeing his ministry through to its end. Jeremiah walked in obedience through the derision, the rejection, the humiliation, the persecution, coming near death on multiple occasions. Jeremiah doesn't give up on his calling. His message throughout was surrender and live. And now Jeremiah lives out his own message. He entrusts his future to Babylon because God told him to. Just as God instructed and instructed the people, this is what Jeremiah does. And he is allowed to continue his ministry in freedom. Commitment avails protection. And as long as he's been preaching and as much as he's endured and as unstable as he may seem at some times, Jeremiah wasn't going to quit on his calling. The job wasn't finished. You recall, I just said it, he was instructed to pluck up and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, but the rest of his calling still lay ahead to plant and build. Jeremiah 1.10. He gained his freedom but he didn't go into retirement. He gained his freedom, but he didn't set up on a tropical island with his shades on and drink in hand. Oh, I'm good now. I'm going to take some time off. No, no, no. He stayed in Jerusalem and he ministered right alongside the people that he loved, the people he'd been sent to. He was committed to the Lord's work. And I love, I love gold mines in the text, especially in the Old Testament. We got a gold mine right here. Verse 14, so he lived among the people. So he lived among the people. Folks, the people, people here, they're, they're ruined they're destroyed. 
They're ravaged by sin. They're lost. They're hopeless. They're dejected. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So he lived among his people. He didn't run away from the problem. He ran to the problem. He didn't exercise his right to freedom. He laid it aside. He dwelt among his people. And they didn't stand a chance under God's judgment. They didn't see in the darkness. They were blinded by sin. They were headed their own way. We were headed our own way. We were separated from God. And some of y'all still think I'm talking about Jeremiah. Come with me. Let me be more clear. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he lived among the people. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten son of God, full of grace and truth. And just like Jeremiah, who saw his ministry through to the end, Jesus Christ was committed to the commission given him from the father to redeem people from every tribe, tongue and nation. And just as God protected Jeremiah, the father protected and preserved Jesus all the way to the end of his earthly ministry, all the way to the hill called Calvary, where he laid down his life. He bled and died. They put him in a tomb. He rose on the third day, and we await the day when we will dwell with him, redeemed, glorified forever. And again, we will say, so he lived among his people. Gold mine. Oh, my goodness. Commitment avails protection. Just as he was protected, Jesus was protected to go to the cross. Just as they were protected, we are protected to continue in mission. Fourth, final result. Fourth response and result. Faith awaits promise. Verses 15 through 18. Kidner notes here that nothing is said of Ebed-Melech's heroism. Nothing is said of his compassion. Nothing is said of his resourcefulness, all of which he displayed in rescuing Jeremiah from the cistern, from the pit, as Cal reminded us last week, as he taught us. The only recognition mentioned here is the faith that made those things possible. But I will deliver you on that day, verse 17 declares the Lord. You shall not be given into the hand of the men whom you are afraid, of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you. There's your sure result. And you shall not fall by the sword. But you shall have your life as a prize of war because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. 
The only recognition mentioned here is the faith that caused him to act on behalf of Jeremiah. God's promise to him, I will save you. Bregman notes here, God promises to do for Ebed-Melech exactly what God would not do for Zedekiah and Judah. God's king, God's people, judged. But this little old Ethiopian guy, a Cushite, he saved. Here's what this means, Christian. One day, we'll get to heaven, or we'll be in the new creation, and we'll see Ebed-Melech, the lone Cushite who believed the word of God, and we'll remember the beauty of Jeremiah 38 and 39. You forget why these things are put here. We forget so easily why these things are put here to show us the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of his saving ways. We'll celebrate over the salvation of this non-Jew. We'll celebrate over the faith God granted for this Cushite. We'll also remember that he had no covenant with God. God was not obligated to him in any way. He was not an Israelite. He was not part of all this that God was seeking to preserve and this remnant to keep. But salvation comes to him. The people of God arrogantly trusted in their Jewishness. They trusted in the city. They trusted in the land, the temple, good works, status, notions of peace. All the while, God is telling them and telling us, stop believing the lie that you have a leg up on others because of something in you. This foreigner, as Pastor Kyle taught us last week, believed the word of the Lord and the promise of salvation was his. And the application for you today is obvious. God deals with us in accord with our response to his word. God deals with us in accord with our response to his word. So I will ask you, what is going to be your response? What's going to be your response? And yes, I'm talking about about tomorrow, talking about next week, talking about every time the word of God is opened and preached faithfully, what is your response going to be? Will it be rebellion? If it's rebellion, you will continue to deal with the peril that God will bring upon you. Maybe it's surrender. Maybe you don't know all the things that you need to know. You don't know what's going to happen, but You trust that God has your best in mind, that things will be good for you if you surrender to what he has, even if it's discipline. Maybe it's commitment. Those of you that have tread the Christian path for a long time, will you renew 
your commitment to that. One thing that I thought was wonderful about the testimony of our, our dear brother Bob Jones was we were able to celebrate the way that he finished well. On the day when he celebrated, we celebrated his life. That brother finished well. Anybody can start. Anybody can start. The question is, will you finish well? Jeremiah finished well. Will you finish well? Maybe it's commitment. And you know that God will protect you. He'll provide every need. He'll sustain you all the way. Finally, maybe faith. Your response to the word of God today needs to be faith that the one Jesus took your penalty on the cross in order to save you. There's no amount of good works, no amount of prayers, no amount of eloquent words that will make you right with God, but it is the shed blood of the Son, the eternal Son, who obeyed perfectly, went to the cross, was buried, rose again in victory. This is your only hope to have his righteousness credited to you by faith. That's what happened to Ebed Melech. How will you respond? Let's respond according to the Spirit's leading. Father, we come thanking you for this morning once again, the beautiful privilege it is to gather with the saints, to remind each other, because we so quickly forget, to remind each other of your goodness in the gospel. Father, it almost seems that we need, we need more than more than once a week to see each other face to face and remind us of these things because we so quickly forget. Let us not be like Zedekiah, yet he shows us so much of ourselves. May we not be deluded into thinking that we can escape discipline at your hand. May we not deceive ourselves. But God, let us be found faithful as Jeremiah was. Let us be found faithful as Ebed-Melech was. Let us be found faithful as Jesus was, as Jesus is. Standing now on our behalf, pleading his blood before your throne. Faithful in all things, faithful to the end, faithful forever. Help us, Father, respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.